Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Ambusky, and you're listening to Conversations at the Washington Library. So over the past month or so, I've been fortunate to interview historians who are doing some really excellent work in the areas of early American legal history and constitutionalism. We've talked about the foundations of American law. We've talked about prominent lawyers like Thomas Erskine and Alexander Hamilton, how George Washington interpreted the Constitution, and even murder in early America. And as I listened to the rough cuts of these chats in recent days, it really became clear to me that they all shared a kind of central narrative arc. Really, how Americans and the British struggled to define and reform the law in the era of the American Revolution and the transatlantic order that emerged in its wake. So over the next four weeks, we're going to present these conversations to you as a kind of mini-series. It's going to look at how the British and the Americans tried to make sense of the new legal world shaped by war and revolution, yet one that still remained deeply rooted in the English legal past. And by its end, you'll have heard from Drs. Nicola Phillips, Kate Brown, Lindsay Travinsky, and Jessica Lowe. They all come at these questions from different angles, using archival evidence found in places close to home like Mount Vernon or as far away as Australia. I'm excited then to kick off this little experiment with Dr. Nicola Phillips of Royal Holloway, University of London. Nicola is an expert on gender, legal, and social history, and we recorded our chat when I was in Edinburgh not too long ago. Nicola is currently at work on a study of Thomas Erskine, a member of the powerful Erskine family, which included a number of prominent figures among the Scottish political and legal elite. Unlike his brother Henry, who ascended to the top of the Scottish legal aristocracy, Thomas Erskine practiced law in England. He even became Lord Chancellor in the early 19th century. And as you'll hear, Thomas's career connected him to legal reformers in the early United States and to the monarchy at the heart of the British Empire. He represents one of the many ways Britain and America remained bound together in the years after American independence. We're going to drop you right down in the middle of my conversation with Nicola. You'll first hear us discuss her most recent work, The Profligate Son, or A True Story of Family Conflict, Fashionable Vice, and Financial Ruin in Regency England, before we move on to her Erskine project. And I think what you'll find from our chat is just how much hard detective work, with a little bit of luck, goes into constructing the stories we tell about the past. And be sure to join us next week for part two of this series as Kate Brown helps us to understand Alexander Hamilton's early American law. Um, So yeah, it took the three of us years to piece all the different bits of one case together. Um, But you know, as well as the, the sort of legal documents, there were like hundreds of letters and they were still wrapped and sealed oh, with still wax. Bun- and still sealed with wax. Yeah, 200 year old wow. letters. And there were three volumes of this kind of record of this, ma- this East India Company merchant's relationship mm-hmm. with his son and how he went off the rails and was convicted and transported to Australia. So, how did, how did you. Um how did you come to that project? What you know? What, um, what the, the profligate son? Yes. Um, I was. I wanted to work on intergenerational conflict mm-hmm. in families, and I met um, an American scholar in the British Library, Margaret Hunt, who was at mm. Amherst, and she'd had. I'd seen a reference in her book on the middling sort and families, and she had said there was this diary that a father had written about his uh, profligate son and I said well do you know where you know yeah where is bit it more, <laughs> more about it and you know she had she had the reference and she said oh god I only used you know like three lines from it and there are three volumes so I went and found three it volumes. three volumes and 
then, you know, but, but she didn't know about the letters. Wow. Boxes and boxes of them. Um, and then uh, all the letters from India, because he was a uh, East India Company merchant. Mm -hmm. And there was scandal and shootings and God knows what going on in India. Um, and then I linked it up because I could find the criminal cases that William Jackson, his name was, was involved in on right. the Old Bailey. Right. So I got those. Then I found his prison records. And then I found his records in, um, he was in jail for debt loads of times as well. So I wow. found all those. And I remember when I first started giving papers, a number of people who said, this is, this is fiction, or it's not. It's not. <laughs> um, so where, where, were the, where are the letters? They're in the National Archives. They are in the National Oh, yes. in Kew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was only allowed to see, you know, they've got this sealed off room, and you have cameras and everything. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. had to call someone to actually cut the seals. Physically cut the wax, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, to, <laughs> to a story, and that's like, you know, stepping on virgin exactly. snow, isn't it? <laughs> That's so like a Christmas present. Every time they have to open one of those things. I know. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. They, they could have first one to see this. And from... Right. Um, you know, and I had letters from his lawyers. And when I looked at what the lawyers were saying after... You know, they had to go to Newgate. He was imprisoned in Newgate. And he okay. got really hacked off because he was in with the common prisoners. <laughs> and they're really vile. <laughs> and you need to pay for me to get into the stateroom. <laughs> he wanted to be in a white-collar prison. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you can. In... in um, Newgate, that you paid. So if oh, you could you, pay, you could you could upgrade your prison yeah, experience. Yeah. you like could go into the state area. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like a. It was as class ridden in the it, in Newgate as outside. That is a concrete example of hierarchy if I've ever heard one. Yeah, it is. Oh it my is. goodness. Um, so I had those letters, <laughs> and the one one from his father to the lawyers saying. I want you to get him off the forgery charge mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, save his life, but make sure he's convicted for the fraud and the rest of it. Wow. And unfortunately, they got him off seven charges. <laughs> <laughs> his father was furious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he wanted him sent away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, just go away. Just, here, yeah, I'll pay exactly. your money to put him away. And it was but about a year later, I think it was 2021, he got convicted in uh, Cheltenham of fraud. And transported to Australia, but I, I had oh, I found the letters mm -hmm. that he wrote from the prison hulk and from the transport ship when it ducked, ducked docked in um, Rio de Janeiro. There's a heartbreaking wow. letter. And what year is this? Uh, eighteen. Yeah, I think twelve. I think he was transported. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was the worst hit. Uh, ship for typhus. The oh. captain died, loads of the crew died, they had to let the prisoners out to save the ship. And all this is in records in Australia because the ship had to be rescued. So we have an account of the storm so and the... Did you go down to Australia, down there? To look? Um, I got a transcription agent oh, and I okay. got Australia to send a microfilm of the... There was a salvage trial. So I got... Wow film of all so the, you, the trial proceedings. And, and so this project, I mean, you, you were sourcing material from everywhere. From all over the world, yeah. Right. And so now with your project, your project on Thomas Erskine, it sounds yeah. like you're on the similar detective hunt. 
Yes, um, to yes. Find I'm, I'm trying to find his connections mm -hmm. because it, because it's um, you know the Anglophone world mm -hmm. and Anglo-American law, and I'd seen uh, references in some of the um, late 19th century and early 20th century mm -hmm. biographies, and they said you know Erskine had dined with American diplomats in London. Why would he do that? Right. And then I found a reference that said his eldest son, David Montague, became ambassador to America. And another one saying that he'd invested in American funds and lost it all after the war. Whoops. Exactly. And I thought, well, you know, there are ways to trace these things. Right. So, um, yeah, that's what sent me on the hunt. So can you, can you give us a sense as to who, who is Thomas Erskine what, what is his life story? His life story? <laughs> okay, Thomas Erskine was born the third son of the 10th Earl of Buchan in um, Edinburgh, uh -huh. but he was the youngest. Oh, so, so he's got to figure out for himself then. Yeah, so he's the impoverished one. <laughs> so the eldest son, um, David Stuart Erskine, becomes the 11th Earl, and he's sent to the Scottish universities. Mm -hmm. He works with um, Adam Smith, Hugh Blair, Adam Ferguson, as does his brother Henry Erskine. So they both go to... Oh, so he's Henry Erskine's brother. Yes. Henry Erskine, Lord Advocate. Um, oh, that Henry Erskine. Yes. yes. But Henry, um, yeah, also worked with those people. But Erskine couldn't. So when he's 14, his family send him into the Navy. He's had no proper education. Nothing. No. But he's sent on board uh, the Tartar, which is the ship captained by is it Sir John Lindsay, the mm. father of Dido Bell, Lord Mansfield's oh, right. um, mixed-race niece. Niece, mm -hmm. Exactly. So... And he's in the Navy for years, I think six or seven years, and he goes around the Caribbean. I'm trying to find out whether the ship, possibly with Erskine on it, because I know Lindsay docked in Pensacola, mm -hmm. but, right, you know. Um, and then when he came back, he couldn't get another commission except as a midshipman. And he has this kind of status envy thing with his brothers. Um, <laughs> Which is understandable, understandable really, right? yes. Yeah. And his parents have moved down to Bath, and they were Presbyterian, but they become Methodists, and they're very religious. Oh, I see. But still there's no money. No so money. he goes into the army um, and rises to lieutenant. Mm -hmm. But all this time on the ships and in the army, he's reading and reading and reading, so he's sort of self-educated in English literature. Really? And then he's in London and he goes, I, I don't know how this works, but there's a contact with Lord Mansfield, first Earl Mansfield, mm -hmm. Lord Chief Justice. And it's Mansfield, kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It's a big deal. And he sits in on a case. Mansfield invites him to sit in. And he oh, goes, wow. okay. You know, I've always been jealous, particularly of Henry, who went into the law and that's what I wanted right. to do. So I think he's nearly 30. And he goes, I'm g that's it. I'm going to sell He's my commission. Um, so he goes to Lincoln's Inn. I think this is about 1775. But I might have to check these dates, sorry. Oh, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll be in the book eventually, so we'll know. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. um, so, and he finds he can cut the amount of time that he 
is at Lincoln's Inn if he does an MA at Cambridge. But you're going to love this. The class system means that because he's a gentleman, mm. he has to do one year and not do any exams. <laughs> but he does win a prize for an English dissertation, which he had to speak um, about the Glorious Revolution. And this is where you start seeing the Whig principles of his family. Because mm -hmm. um, Buchan was a Whig and right. hugely supportive of George Washington. So this is his brother, David Stuart yeah, Erskine, 11th Earl of Buchan, ends up corresponding with George Washington for over a decade. And Washington's secretary, Tobias Lear, right. comes uh -huh. over and stays with Buchan and writes letters about you know what's going on in Scotland. And, and Buchan celebrates Washington's birthday in Edinburgh. <laughs> And he sends accounts was, of it over to was this Washington a, a, and a public celebration or, a, yeah, or apparently <laughs> he's written all about it. And so yeah. how, how did that? Do we know how that how that was received by? I just found it. It's in Thomas Jefferson's papers. Oh, okay. Um, and there's some handwritten notes scrawled on it, but it only talks about the speeches, so I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'll, I'll keep looking, obviously, yeah. but I don't know how. That's written. No, I just I'm trying to imagine, you know, the cel. And it, what, what year is this? Do we know? It was some 1780 somewhere in there, probably. But it could have been after Washington's death, actually. Oh, after but his I, don't, death. I don't know. That's for definite. It's just really interesting. I find that fascinating, you know, for a lot of reasons. But you know, mostly because it's not long after the revolution ends, and there's yeah. there's still a lot of bitter feelings on, well, really on both sides. But then there's kind of, uh, and, you know, uh, people are still interested in sort of finding a way to move forward. But then. <laughs> To have a uh, celebration of, of you know a person who could be conceived of as a traitor, um, but there, but there was a, what Tobias Lear wrote to Washington is that there is a, a lot of support. There was for a lot him. of affinity. Yeah, in in areas of mm. Scotland and certainly those associated with Buchan. With Buchan. Um, and in a, in a Whig circle of the uh, Whig circle, mm -hmm. yeah. And Henry Erskine becomes a Whig politician, so he sits in Westminster as well as serving as Lord Advocate in oh, Scotland. And right. he's also a Whig, um, but I haven't found out much about that yet. But anyway, so Thomas Erskine um, qualifies, and he, what does he do? He writes the defence for Admiral Keppel. I don't know his oh, name. during, uh, so he was yep. on trial for treason after? Yes, that's um, right. Um, Erskine wasn't his act wasn't actually there, but he wrote everything for him. And yeah, Keppel gave him a thousand pounds. Can you remind Keppel? I can't remember why he was put on trial. <laughs> I can't remember either. <laughs> I can find but, out. But, 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 but it, it wasn't but it right. He it was huge. He lost, a, he lost a naval engagement, and basically. Yeah, I think there was something about he'd done something they, his misconduct. Right. Basically, um, you can you can get court martialed for. Mm. Losing a campaign, and th yeah. did, did they execute him? I can't remember. Keppel, no, because he oh, got off. He got off. He did. And it was this huge public celebration, and and all these portraits of him. Um, Kate Retford was showing in the plenary yesterday. Oh, at the conference. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there were all these portraits distributed to leading wings and, and of Keppel, <laughs> and prints in the newspapers and what have you. And then shortly after that, Erskine defended Lord George Gordon. Gordon oh, after riots, the riots, seventeen eighty. Yeah. Same. Right. And suddenly he starts earning money. So he's um, in a, he's in ascendancy at that point. Yeah, he's just. It, I think it. Um, yeah, Gordon riots. There are Americans there who write home and say, 
I just heard Lord Erskine speaking. So that's when people start to realise he's important. And then the trial that really gets him noticed, and this is why I'm working on freedom of the press rather Mm -hmm. than the treason trials of the radicals in the 1790s, because fewer people have done freedom of the press, is the 1784 trial of William Shipley, the Dean of St Asaph. So he published a pamphlet, not even written by him, but he wanted it published. Um, and it was a conversation between a gentleman and a farmer. But it Not was... one of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a thinly veiled discussion of citizens' rights mm-hmm. to representation, interestingly, right to resistance and to bear arms, oh, which Erskine really? supported in court, um, and limitations on the king's power. And that's when Erskine gets into full flow about... You know, I, uh, his Whig ideals, mm-hmm. Magna Carta, um, Bill of Rights, you know, it, it's, it's all there in his defence speeches. And he says there's nothing in this pamphlet that isn't already set down by the revolution in 1688 and Magna, Char- Magna Charta, he calls it. But he also, to get, because in a, a libel trial, the jury, unlike in other criminal trials, are only allowed to decide fact, mm-hmm. not law. Not law, yeah. So that's, um, you know, that's effectively only giving them a partial verdict. And so the judges, most of the time, went, no, this is libelous. Yeah. The jury can't decide whether the content is libelous, and only whether they actually published it. And Mansfield was famous for that. In a, in a exactly. Yeah. So Mansfield adopts um, William Blackstone's definition in his famous commentaries Mm -hmm. on the laws of England um, that definition of freedom of the press is no prior restraint. End of story. Anything you publish afterwards can still be judged. Mm -hmm. But um, Mansfield adopts this and holds hard to it and Erskine steps forward in in the Asaph trial and said I am a patriot citizen and you are attacking public liberties through this one man and I have to do my duty as an advocate but also as a citizen citizen. to stop this happening Mm. and he says to the jury you can you can say we will find him guilty of publishing but not libel Oh, and there's this huge yeah. row. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's all written down, you know. And the judges say, "You can't do that." And I was going, "I can." And the jurymen uh, stand up, and, and they refuse to fully convict. So, but the judge goes, "You know, this is he, tough. Yeah, he's, tough. He's convicted." Uh, so it goes on appeal to King's Bench, where Mansfield and the other judges turn it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but these speeches and Erskine was funded by um, the Society for Constitutional Information oh, yeah. yeah to take this defense so they are frantically pam- printing pamphlets and Erskine's speech both in the original trial and against Mansfield gets circulated it's all over the newspapers um, and as one American 
newspaper put it, when Erskine lost the Asaf trial, he became more famous <laughs> than anybody who'd actually <laughs> won it. Sometimes you got to lose to, to exactly. really make your mark. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it also put his Whig political credentials mm-hmm. right up there. And um, it was clear where he there is a handwritten yeah. note on his copy of the trial that said he knew very well he wasn't going to win it, but he did want it published. And he was doing that because Charles James Fox, the Whig leader, was introducing the first libel act that year in Parliament in 1784. So it was an overtly political act mm-hmm. to do that. To reform and like yeah. the reform movement that comes yeah, later. Exactly. So, um, but obviously the libel bill is defeated, and it takes another 15 years. Yeah, it's, it's not. 1792. Yeah, it's, it's much later yeah. when it finally comes through. But in when. Fox puts the bill forward, he goes, you know, this is for Erskine. Erskine started this. um, And you should pass this bill to crown his career. And we have to stop. You know, what we want is clarification on the rights of juries. So the big difference in England is that truth does not become the the battle. So in America, Mm. you've got the Zenger case. And what's interesting is Erskine had been sent um, a copy of the, of the printed version of uh, the Zenger case in and, New York. And remind, remind us of what, what that one is. Um, that was a New York printer um, who was prosecuted for libel. This is before the war. Okay. Um, but he claimed that what he had written was true and the jury sided with him, with him. against what would then be a, a, uh, the you know, the royal prosecutor. Right, the royal, yeah, yeah. crown so prosecutor. It, crown prosecutor, exactly, yeah. effectively. So juries then were more willing to stand up against foreign rulers, <laughs> I suppose you could call <laughs> yeah, it. <exactly. laughs> um, but of course, after the revolution, it gets a little bit more difficult. Um, uh, but, and as many people point out, you know, you, you have the First Amendment. Right, yeah, exactly. Which is a positive pro. But most of the judges in libel cases uh, stick with... Um, They're going with the common law tradition. That, exactly. Well, the judges are using yeah. Mansfield. And what I've been working on is ways that uh, Erskine's arguments in the St. Asaph and uh-huh. other cases, because, of course, he becomes more famous once he defends Thomas Paine's mm-hmm. rights of man. And I think what a lot of people haven't noticed is that there's a huge section in that where he talks about the excellence of the British Constitution, but America (laughs) is even better. Yeah, they've created a codified Constitution. He's he's yeah completely he he um, praises America to the skies. There's a huge section all about how wonderful it was. In fact, he was even when he was in the army and writing something about abuses in the military, he talks about the winds of liberty coming over from America. So he's, he's really... He's, he's always been pro-America. And he's, yeah. and, and of course, it sounds like his family is already you know, predisposed to those kind of wicked exactly. principles. And so, yeah. um, and so what's the, what is the broader scope of your project at the moment? Um, what's the, you know, certainly we don't want to give away the thesis because, you know, you're actively working on it. Um, yeah. But... Um, you know, what's the uh, what's sort of the big thirty thousand foot view of <laughs> of this project on Thomas Erskine and Anglo American law? Um, I want to look at um, transatlantic legal culture. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not just about the law, it's about I want to bring politics back into the law because I think it tends, um, legal histories of lawyers tend to talk about them having liberal principles mm -hmm. and as if somehow that's politically disinterested. Right. And it isn't no. on either side of the Atlantic. Even in this period, you know, politics and law are really the same thing in a lot of ways. But the historiography runs on two parallel but very rarely intersecting tracks. I would completely agree. Mm -hmm. So that's that's my project is to put the two Bring them together. Together. So A, I want to put the politics and the law back together using Erskine as a, a case study in a in a way. And particularly because freedom of the press is a political issue. Certainly. So, you know, it's seditious libel is in both countries. Um, and the press itself isn't a, you know, covering it all the time. Right, right. So that's one. Um, the other is this culture of, of oratory, actually. Ah. That's the other thing that I'm really interested in. Because the, the Erskine was celebrated as an outstanding advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, his ability to um, both produce reasoned arguments but persuade, you know, it's, it's how he gets jury sympathy. Mm -hmm. um, and so his use of emotion and his, well, quite often theatrical performances. It's a very, it's a very theatricality exactly, to it. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I think that has political overtones as well. The ideas about oratory and political persuasion and emotion, that mm -hmm. ties into the radicals. So if, and he, he lacked a, a formal education, I guess, that we would expect of a, of a, a gentleman in that period, or at least, at least of his. Yeah, I mean, it, but he knew the English classics inside right. out, and so he used to cite them a lot, especially um, Milton, Locke, Marvel. So he knew. So, and, and I guess the question is, how did he learn that the performative nature of, of the law and that theatricality? Just through practice or by watching people like Mansfield, he was, you know, man, I would have loved to have this, seen Mansfield is, on the bench. Yeah. Yeah. So would I. <laughs> yeah. But I would even more like to see Erskine in yeah, court. Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing eventually I'd like to do, and I'm working with a colleague on this, we're looking at how um, ancient Greek rhetoric, so oh, Aristotle's yes. theory of rhetoric, mm -hmm. um, as ethos, pathos, and logos uh, informed later right. uh, you know, American and British 18th century advocates and their oratory um, but I think you know you can see it working in mm -hmm. both countries and Erskine's name is in so many books on oratory as well as I love when they have titles like the British Cicero <laughs> 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 that's not too shabby a title no I thought that was good um, but to me you know he's yeah, he is a patriot, mm -hmm. and there are American lawyers that call him that in court when citing his arguments. So, so who is paying attention to him in, in the States? Who's, so, who's, um, where is he, yeah, where is he, he most features popular? in the correspondence, um, well, of George Washington, mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams a lot. He writes to his sons oh. and says, go and listen to, to Erskine. I mean, that's how you're going to learn. He said, he said that to his son? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he wrote a letter saying, go and listen. Oh, wow. it, that was in the to the treason trials. They were over. Um, in, I think it's 
Payne's trial, Erskine cites Publicola, and that was John Quincy. Publicola letters mm-hmm. with John Quincy Adams. <laughs> but then, of course, once Erskine, um, because he's Erskine being a Whig was mm-hmm. very pro initially the French Revolution, but he hates its excesses. And he writes right. a book called The Causes and Consequences of the War with France. Oh, he does? Okay. Okay, and he sends a copy to Washington with a personal oh, uh, inscription, yeah. um, which finds its way into Jefferson's library. But <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, saying that despite of all the great men he's worked with, which is a lot, mm-hmm. he still regards... Washington with, and I'm quoting, awful reverence. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a... You know, he he really looks up to Washington. But I I think this is as much as a gentleman as Mm -hmm. a Whig. And I... I, So the third thing I want to do is look at his masculinity as a gentleman, as a man of honour. Oh, Because a lot of... um, uh, libel cases are about private damages yeah, and there's a big split on both sides of the Atlantic the, where they all want the the political ideal is the liberty of the press mm-hmm. but it's licentiousness mm. is not and licentiousness um, includes obscene libel blasphemous libel so Erskine gets even more popular when he prosecutes Paine's Age of Reason okay. and his defence of Christianity and that is reprinted in papers and pamphlets for decades afterwards um, but also personal, you know, uh, a gentleman's character, a man's right. reputation cannot... Which is a you know, formidable currency in that period. Well, exactly. You know, and, and Washington talks about that it's the worst thing you should, can do. That's the, uh, a terrible crime. Um, and I think that Erskine and Washington have similar codes mm-hmm. of elite, effectively military or martial masculinity. Now, Erskine, not only was in the Navy and the Army, but, you know, we know he dueled. We know he used oh. to defend um, <laughs> duelists by going, well, actually, I'd rather be in prison than yeah. <laughs> pitied or, or despised by society. And exactly. I don't know what. <laughs> there are worse so, things to Yeah, there are worse things, like, you impute my honour, and that, that is social death. Right, right, exactly. For a, yeah. for a gentleman, that is social no. death. Um, and so did he carry on a correspondence with Washington or was it just the, the one book? No, it was just the one book. Um, the correspondence is all between Buchan. And so it's Buchan who writes to Washington and said, will you take Thomas's son in, Thomas Erskine's mm-hmm. son in, when he visits America? So Erskine sends his son to America uh, uh, as an educational experience, but also to start managing the money that he's invested over there. And you said that earlier that he had invested some money. Where, yeah. where had he invested that in? in, in a, I've a, got to find that. Yeah. That I haven't found yet. Um, but it did come up again after the war. And William Cobbett was very cool. He he thought, because there was talk about confiscating foreign investment right. oh, yeah. in the early 19th century. Yeah, And, and Cobbett, who used to always refer to Erskine as Clackmannan, in the onomatopoeic sense, you know, yeah. he didn't like him at all. <laughs> um, he said, yeah, uh, you know, with writing ghastly stuff like that, he hoped Catman would lose all his money. Lose all his money. And he did. 
You know, yeah. that, that was the tragedy. Do we know how much it was? it was? Old. No, I haven't found yeah. that yet. Again, but, that's another... But still, yeah. enough that it hurt. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very sad when he's an old man. He's, he's lot, he had to sell. He had a beautiful um, house in Hampstead that was joined to Mansfield Estate. Oh, it was they, could, they could, oh, they could, cross. there was a little tunnel between them. <laughs> they could, <laughs> they could go see each other. So, um, well, that, I mean, those must, that must have been a really interesting relationship because Manfield comes down, you know, very heavily on the, you know, the conservative slash Tory side of, of libel and, and, you know, the crown's prerogative, whereas And it's, Erskine's it's really like, awkward. Yeah. Um, and also it, that, uh, King's Bench appeal I told you about, mm-hmm. You know, he he bats Erskine off as if he's, you know, he calls him a, I'm not sure if it's a schoolboy, but it's something, you know, really diminutive. And, yeah. and in a lot of Erskine's speeches after, he keeps referring to that put down. That really hurt. That stuck with him for a while. Yeah, I can't remember the exact words <laughs> now, but that hurt. That's such a, that's a very Mansfield thing to do, too. Yeah, yeah, he was like, <laughs> that's a silly argument. You know, that kind of batted away. Yeah, just away. dismissive of... Yeah, that's just not going to work. So, but I can't, I, I've got to find Mansfield letters. I can't find anything in the biographies, the, the personal yeah. correspondence. So that's another avenue to... To pursue. To, yeah. And so as part of this project, you, so you were a, a Georgian Papers program fellow through the Library yeah. of Congress, is that, and this, that was in support of this project, is that right? That's right, Yeah. I applied for a Georgian Papers Fellowship because um, Erskine was also Attorney General to the Prince of Wales. Ah. Mm. And 1806 to 7, he was Lord Chancellor to George III. And he was actually great friends with the Prince of Wales. And this is where his idea about private character comes Mm -hmm. in because he would defend the Prince of Wales and his brothers. They all thought he was wonderful. They used to call him um, our ingenious friend. So when they ever got into trouble legally, which was frequently, yeah, yeah frequently, <laughs> um, both over things they'd said that was printed in the newspapers and various marital escapades, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some mistresses, Mrs. Fitzherbert, oh, for yes, instance. Yes. So Erskine would go in to defend them. So he got a reputation for being uh, for having two different views, you know, being inconsistent, typical lawyer, take the money. Oh, yeah, take but it wasn't because he always said, and I have it in a letter, that the press is, he calls it, a two-sided sword. Oh, yeah. And so he, he will not, he doesn't see it as inconsistent. And of course, he's also, in st- when he's defending Payne, defended the, or set up the, what's now called the cab rank rule, that a lawyer, mm-hmm. and without very good reason, must always accept, you know, that any man has the right to a defence. I see. Mm-hmm. You must take the case, and that still stands in England. And so, as part of part of your fellow, so you spent time in the Library of Congress and in the Royal Archives. Yeah, I spent um, a month in the Royal Archives at Windsor, which is wonderful because they're they're um, in the Round Tower, mm-hmm. so you have to climb up hundreds it's of like, steps. It's like 170 steps, if I remember rightly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was exhausted by the top of the steps. Exactly. <laughs> and you go and work in this room, you know, it's like a mahogany dining room mm-hmm. table. It's gorgeous. It only fits about four people, but, um, and, and there are boxes and boxes, and it's all, I've seen more handwritten Erskine letters 
in the Royal Archives than anywhere, anywhere else. else. Yeah. That's um, amazing. And so he, you know, although he's a Whig, he's um, in England, even country Whigs were not anti the monarchy right. per se. It was the idea of executive power, mm-hmm. but not the monarchy. He was always loyal to the prince. So he's definitely not a small king. R Republican. He's, he's, he's a. No, no, he's not def- that I can find anyway. That I've not yet. Thomas Paine, after Erskine had prosecuted him, wrote rather cattily that when once he'd been talking to Erskine about the English Constitution, he said he'd tear it up and not start from there. <laughs> but, you know, he didn't... Payne is one of the few defendants that Erskine never actually identified with in the case. He wouldn't stand up mm-hmm. and do a Patriot Citizen chat. Oh, I see. About Payne. And so you, you were there for a month in the Royal Archives, I that right? I was there for a month in the Royal Archives, yeah, um, working with Oliver Walton, the archivist who brilliant you know he's was really helpful and there is still mountains there particularly um uh, the delicate investigation into queen caroline and prince oh, of right. wales's wife or mm-hmm. princess as she was then and then erskine in later life which i haven't got to of course is queen caroline's trial which is oh. hugely covered in the, in is, the press. He, is he involved in that as well yes he is okay yes, he, that's like his last big hurrah so he is he involved dies. in the, over the course of his career, some of the serious, um, uh, serious, um, I've lost my train of thought. Well, I'll cut that part. He's involved in some serious, tri- oh, F. <laughs> she was signaling to me, and I, um, lost your train. Yeah. Some uh, of the most serious political yeah, serious, issues of exactly, the day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In Britain and America. And so, and this is, it's really fascinating because you know, the United States is a new independent country, but it's still, I mean, it is a common law nation. And, yeah. and the individ- respective states are certainly common law. And, and their legal identity is informed by English law since the founding uh, of, the, of the colonization. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, they're both going through a period of legal transformation and trying to grapple with all these new political ideals that are coming out. Yeah. And, but... Um, but they're, it's like a product of both of their histories. And so well, it, it seems it, like it is. Erskine's like kind of a, a uh, he's the middle part of that Venn diagram in a lot of ways. That's Well, yeah. As uh, Horatia Gates wrote to Jefferson and sent him a copy of um, Erskine's Causes and Consequences of the War with France. And he said, every Whig in this country must adore the man a, yeah. for the, the arguments he's making here. And Jefferson goes, yes. It's done really good work in Philadelphia, so oh, you know yeah. they are aware of that political strand. But on the other side of it, um, the lawyers that want to use English common law, um, particularly the in in its broader sense, so rather than just uh, the Westminster courts, mm-hmm. because that would involve Mansfield's precedents. Right. What they have to do is take into to to make the case. They have to argue for. Um, the Libel Act, mm-hmm. granting juries the act, uh, the full rights, but also the the constitutional ideas that come the, of the jury as a, um, a pillar of the constitution and a bulwark against not just British executive power in the king, but for people like Alexander Hamilton, it's against 
executive power of political parties who can right. appoint judges right. to the court. So it's a similar argument. And it's a, yeah, exactly. No, exactly, and it's playing out on, yeah. on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. So what? What are the? Uh, so you've got some more research to do, but uh, any any other major next steps? And besides, you know, writing it and publishing it. Doing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more avenues I need to go down. Um, there's a lot of material at um, Yale and Harvard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a few more trips across the. Yes, yeah, definitely some transatlantic trips. Um, oh darn. Yes, <laughs> and there's a there's the St George Tucker that I would like oh, to get yes. back to yep. the, his edited down in my neck of the woods. Yeah, comments on Blackstone's. Um, We're big fans edition. of St George Tucker down at there at William and Mary. You know, yes, like, yeah. yes. Well, I was lucky enough to go to William and Mary uh, two years ago. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, you saw, probably saw a lot of his works there. Yes, I, I did. Yes, Very but good. at that stage, I didn't know I was going to focus on freedom of the press mm -hmm. um, and so I know about Tucker's um, appendix on freedom of the press which is fascinating from a political standpoint right. I mean if ever you want to see politics in in the law right there. in the law there it is <laughs> <laughs> in the appendix on freedom of the press yeah well we wish you the best of luck and look forward to the book and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon thank you it's been thank, a pleasure thank you very much Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Division. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thank you and see you next time.